Therapy Cafe podcast, episode four. Hello, and welcome to the Therapy Cafe podcast. I'm Kathleen Talent, and I'm a clinical psychologist. Allison Stenson and I are on a mission with this podcast to break down the stigma associated with mental health and to support you the mental health professional, and people working out there with um, those with mental health issues as you strive to make a difference in the lives of other people and in your community too. We're focusing on a variety of different topics here that are affecting people's mental health. And really what we're doing is looking deeply at a particular topic. Our first topic is first responder mental wellness. And uh, we're looking at it from a variety of vantage points. So we can get a lot of different ideas, experiences, and points of view, like from uh, clinicians out there in the field who are in the trenches, from the researchers who are uh, out there, you know, collecting information to help us understand the issue. We're going to try to get them out of the academic institutions, at least for a little while, and talk to you the clinician out there uh, to really apply the knowledge and the understanding. And we're also going to talk to people out there who are uh, experiencing whatever that is and uh, really learn from them. And perhaps that's the most important thing of all. We certainly need to include them. And we approach the work that we do, at least I'll speak for myself and for Allison, we uh, approach our work in a heart-centered way. And um, my bet is that you do too, because as clinicians, that's kind of why we got into this work in the mental health field. Our hearts were in it, I think, for many of us. And uh, we've learned a lot along the way. Maybe had a lot of classes, a lot of practicums, a lot of internships. And we learned a lot. But the field is evolving really fast. There's so much to learn. It's pretty. It's so broad. So uh, perhaps like you, I consider myself a lifelong learner. And I'm always looking for ways to learn and grow and make a difference to help people. There, there's so much information out there. So the goal here really is to get the opportunity to talk to people one-on-one, kind of pick their brains a little bit and uh, find out ways to really help us do the work that we need to do and kind of hit the ground running. I was just talking this week with a wonderful colleague who's a licensed clinical social worker in Washington, D.C., and hopefully we'll be working together in the future. And then also hopefully she'll be on the podcast as well. And we're talking about the types of learning that us in the mental health field sort of get exposed to. And we learn a lot from textbooks and from our classes as we're getting our training early on. And we get a lot out of that. You know, we learn from our professors, from our from textbooks, et cetera. But when it comes to the application in real life, it's not going to happen uh, in an orderly fashion in the real world necessarily. You know, the real world doesn't often look like what they teach us in the textbook. So it's good to be able to follow up and complement what you're learning, what you have learned in a textbook, and you know, really be able to accentuate that and to, to understand the issues and with more depth, often more depth to it. And that's really the mission of this podcast as a complement to that. So you learn all about theories, you learn about different topics, but when you're out there in the real world, really as a therapist and boots on the ground doing your work, you're kind of getting a taste of, it's like a living learning laboratory. You're learning every day. You learn from every client. I've learned from every client I've ever worked with. And you really never stop. And that helps you get better and better at what you do, I think, to have that attitude. So that's what we're striving to do here is to take those uh, topics, that information that you might have heard a little bit about and in classes or in textbooks, things like that, or in a CEU training, 
and be able to have some real informative talk with people out there who are doing the work on in that topic or living the experience. So um, that's kind of what we're all about. And um, there's a very real research practice gap out there. You may have heard of it. It's uh, the idea that there's a lot of people out there doing research in the field of mental health, and they're doing a lot of good work. But it doesn't always get translated uh, over to the clinician and the people who are in the applied settings. So that's kind of another aspect. It's connected to what we're doing is to focus on a topic and connect the empirical research, all that stuff, in a really, in a real way, as real as we can, with what's really going on out there. And all along, we take an approach at the Therapy Cafe podcast of holistic wellness. So focusing on those positive aspects, positive psychology, mind, body, spirit, wellness. So you'll hear us do that throughout as well, to the best of our ability anyway. So you'll find information about us in this podcast at www.thetherapycafe.com. In this episode, we're continuing to focus on first responder mental wellness. Let's get started. So I am thrilled today to have Sherry Martin as a guest for the Therapy Cafe podcast. Sherry serves as the National Director of Wellness Services for the Fraternal Order of Police. It's the largest representative organization of law enforcement officers in the United States with over 355,000 members. A career police officer, Sherry has extensive experience in crisis negotiation and intervention, serving most of her law enforcement career as a patrol supervisor and lead crisis negotiator. She's formerly um, a member of the Charleston Police Department in South Carolina, where she achieved the rank of lieutenant. Um, Sherry also has considerable academic achievements and qualifications and is also a trained therapist. So welcome, Sherry. Thank you very much. Honor to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks. So um, can you, um, for starters, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do as the National Director of Wellness Services? Absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, the Fraternal Order of Police is the largest representative organization of sworn uh, active and retired law enforcement in the world. Um, We have both active and retired members of law enforcement among our membership. And the structure of our organization is such that we are member driven and member led. All of our executive board officers are elected by our members. Um, We have uh, state lodges in each state and then subordinate lodges. So it's kind of a a structure where a local lodge may form around the police department or within a police department. And then uh, they are overseen basically by a state lodge in each state. And then that state lodge uh, has representatives on the national board as well. So uh, we're completely, completely member driven. Um, I, you know, although I am an employee of the Fraternal Order Police, I kind of uh, think of myself as an employee of the 355,000 members. As you know, I affectionately, affectionately refer to them as the as the 355,000, and that number is growing every day. Um, the you know a little bit of background about what the Fraternal Order of Police is. We started out, we're over 100 years old, um, and we started out as an organization for uh, primarily labor um, representation of police officers. Um, The founding members of the organization in Pennsylvania kind of realized that there was more power in numbers, and they organized with the idea that uh, the power in their numbers would help them get better benefits and better working conditions for police officers. So we started out as basically a labor organization, but um, that's since evolved into a number of other things that we do for our membership. Uh, We, for some time, have had as another pillar of our organization legislative efforts. So we lobby state and, and uh, national legislators for, you know, about things that are um, important to police officers and the way that we do our job, the work that we do in our communities, and, you know, things that um, will make law enforcement a, a safer, 
um, and a better career for, for all involved. And then about a year ago, uh, we developed a third tier to our organization as kind of one of our pillars and that being, that being wellness. And what prompted that is we have in the FOP a number of committees that do all sorts of things, ranging from looking at pensions to um, you know, looking at border safety and security uh, to body armor and body cameras and equipment issues and you know, anything that would be related to the work and livelihood of a career in law enforcement. And we had as one of those committees, an officer wellness committee. Um, it started several years ago as a critical incident committee because back then the profession looked at things that go on in law enforcement, mostly around critical incidents. So when we say critical incidents, we mean things like you know an officer involved shooting, um, a line of duty death, something that um, is really a traumatic incident for a police officer to be involved in. And the Critical Incident Committee started as a look at how we could best support agencies that say maybe are involved in like a large scale incident like a 9-11 or Oklahoma City bombing. Um, and, you know, what our organization could do to support officers involved in that. So the FOP is not affiliated or attached to any police organization administration. We are an independent um, organization that our sole mission is to work for the benefit and um, improve working conditions of police officers. So the critical incident committee then evolved a few years ago into the officer wellness committee and we started to look beyond just critical incidents. In 2018 uh, I was a member of that committee still a working police officer working full-time as a police officer and most of the members and leaders in the FOP are working police officers, or you know, some of them are retired leaders. <clears throat> Excuse me, some of our leaders are retired, uh, but they do their duties in the FOP sort of as something extra that they do, you know, beyond their career as a police officer. That was so. That was me uh, at the time. I was a member of that committee, and one of the things that we had an opportunity to do on the committee was to partner with NBC New York, the news. Um, to conduct a survey. And what, what happened is NBC New York had done a similar survey with firemen uh, through the International Association of Firefighters. So the IAFF is sort of like the FOP for firemen. And they had had such a great response to that survey that they said, you know what, this team of journalists said, you know, we really want to hear from police officers and hear about what kinds of things they're going through. And what they were interested in is learning about the prevalence of critical stress on the job, you know, how, how um, prevalent it is, what sorts of services were available uh, to police officers that might be struggling with things. And they wanted to kind of show the struggle that law enforcement has um, dealing with those things in their career. So we agreed to partner with them to conduct the survey. Um, and we had our own interest in the survey within the FOP. We wanted to know because intuitively from a career in law enforcement, we know that there is mistrust of um, asking for help uh, within law enforcement circles. Most first responders have been trained and cultured to take care of themselves, to handle their own problems, to, you know, and it, there's been a great deal of stigma we knew intuitively around seeking help when it comes to mental health within first responder professions. So we wanted to know what the extent of that was and what services were available out there for first responders when they did need help and whether or not those services were being used. And if they weren't being used, why not? Um, and if they weren't being used, what were our officers doing to cope with uh, any struggles that they might be facing? So we learned a great deal from that survey. Um, there was an overwhelming response to it. And, and the way that we did it is we uh, circulated the survey within our membership. So using our leadership structure, it was distributed to each state's leadership and then down to members. So. Uh, we learned that over 90% of the respondents to the survey believe that there's a stigma against asking for help. Oh, that's so, a yeah, huge number. That's a staggering number. Yes. Staggering. So, um, so we, you know, we asked where the sources of that stigma come from. Um, the number one reason is fear of being seen as weak or unfit for duty by colleagues. Uh, that was the number one endorsed reason. The second endorsed reason was fear of affecting their job or losing their job. So, you know, and you might say that seems crazy, 
but um, it, as far as about a year or two ago, in some states, for example, in Connecticut, where I live now, um, there was a law on our books that if a person is institutionalized in a mental health, um, inpatient mental health for substance abuse, uh, they cannot own or possess a, a firearm for six month period. And so, you know, police officers would find themselves in need of help, um, you know, be able to get back to a place of civility within six weeks um, and then not be able to go back to work because they weren't able to possess a firearm. So for, fortunately, that law has been changed in Connecticut to exempt first responders. But, you know, those are the kinds of things uh, that people were thinking about and why they might say that, you know, they had a fear of losing their job. We found that 80% um, of the respondents to the survey knew that their employer offered um, services, mostly in the form of EAP, employee assistance programs, but only 20% had actually accessed those services. Um, and so we saw there an overarching theme of mistrust in agency provided services. And you know there were some concerns uh, endorsed about counselors not understanding the work of a first responder or you know being oh, anecdotally we heard stories of counselors being overwhelmed um, when conducting therapy with first responders about the things that they were hearing and you know that actually having a detrimental effect instead of a positive effect so with that data armed with that data we in the FOP uh, decided to build some programs that would fill in the gaps, that would provide services and connections for officers where their agency either could not, had not, or there was mistrust in agency-provided services. Because we are independent of, you know, any department administration, we felt like we were in a unique place to provide programs and services that would fill in those gaps that might have greater use uh, by those officers. So we set about to build some of these programs and countered the opportunity to apply for federal grants and applied for federal grants and got the federal grants to fund the programs that we're doing, which then facilitated more of a full-time focus on officer wellness. And um, so I became the director of wellness services. I retired from law enforcement uh, with my background in counseling a career in law enforcement and inside knowledge of the FOP for the better part of 20 years, uh, it was a good fit for me and for the FOP to be in that position. So I'm proud to say that uh, we have a number of initiatives that we're working on uh, within the organization. And I'll start by talking about um, the, the two programs that we receive federal grants for. Right now, uh, we, what, one thing that we learned from the survey as well is that the number one um, sought after service when it comes to help seeking among law enforcement is peer support. And this came as no surprise uh, to me having been in law enforcement 20 something years, but peer support um, has not, you know, just re it's still just recently coming to be um, a part of most agencies. It was, you know, found here and there in larger agencies I know some departments have had peer support for a long time, larger departments like LA, Indianapolis, and things like that. But many, especially small departments, did not have any such thing, and some still don't. Um, so we recognize, though, whereas you know maybe half of those who had used EAP, EAP services or even counseling outside of the knowledge of their employer said that they felt that that was helpful about half the time. Those who had had the opportunity to use peer support, even though it was not as common, said that they uh, felt more than three out of four times it was helpful to them. So uh, we know that that is something that they're going to go to and look to use. There is right now no standardized curricul curriculum in law enforcement peer support. There is standardized curriculum by the Interna International Critical Incident Stress Foundation and Critical Incident Stress Management. And that's been around for a, a number of years and centers around critical incidents, the things I talked about, like, you know, large scale incidents, officer involved shootings, things that'll bring about a response to trauma um, and helping support officers and departments through those. But one thing that we learned is that even though, yes, critical incidents like that affect the mental well being of our law enforcement officers, there's lots of other stressors out there that aren't related to critical incidents. You take, for example, 
most police officers active police officers work work rotating shifts um, or they work odd shifts they work on holidays they miss birthdays at home um, you know a lot of law enforcement officers are not paid very well so there's financial stress involved um, there is certainly marital stress involved and at some times um, because of the demands of a law enforcement career or any first responder career for that matter. Um, and we know that sometimes those stressors, oftentimes those stressors are more prevalent and more pressing on our officers than just those around a critical incident. So we wanted to develop peer support training that would help our peer supporters guide their peers through those other situations, through those everyday stressors, you know, when a, a um, lady or guy at work is struggling with something that's going on at home and their coworker notices that they're just not themselves, it would give the peer the opportunity to step in at that point and you know, give them some support and, and direct them to, to better services if that's what they need. So we proposed developing standardized peer support curriculum with that new piece added on that will give uh, peer supporters, you know, means to support their peers in an everyday situation. And the Department of Justice um, felt that we were a good vehicle to develop that training because we're trusted by our membership. So in cooperation with the um, Community Order Policing Service section of the Department of Justice, we are developing that peer support curriculum for, um, for law enforcement. Now, it's gonna be called Power and Peers, and we are actively in the development of that curriculum now and hope that it will be available in the next, um, hopefully in the next half a year. And then we will travel around the country to deliver that training to trainers who can then deliver it to other peers, hopefully creating a widespread uh, base of peer supporters across the country. Um, what, what that's going to naturally do is create a network of trained peer supporters across the country. So uh, we learned that even with the stigma that still persists among law enforcement, we learned that even peer support sometimes is not used. And I'll give you an example. Um, the agency that I worked at last is a small department here in Connecticut and about 100 officers. So they're a large enough agency that they have a peer support team and they have trained peer supporters on staff. Uh, but when I would ask coworkers, would you talk to a trained peer supporter at our agency? They would say no, because there's still a fear uh, of a breach of confidentiality that, um, you know, a, a friend might have a, a, a beer or lunch with another friend and, and, you know, confidentiality be compromised. Real or not, there is still that fear. Mm -hmm. So, we, uh, through the training of peer supporters around the country, hope to develop a national network of trained peer supporters so that one peer who is in need, say in Connecticut, can call a peer in Colorado, or California, or Utah, and they'll be able to get a trained and listening ear on the other end um, who will understand what they're going through and be able to offer support. And they won't, that will erase the, the worry about having um, that confidentiality breached. Wow, that is a great idea. And, yeah. and to have that coordinated effort like that, that is yeah, fantastic. We're, we're very excited about the, the prospects of that. And, you know, so most peer support um, teams around the country and certainly, um, you know, what we would call best practices in peer support is obviously to be supported by professional clinicians, to have uh, a link to um, professional clinicians that can, you know, follow, follow up with additional services when they're needed, um, provide that additional support when it's beyond the scope and the range of the abilities of the peer supporter. And so what, what we're doing as well with the second grant uh, to support the Power in Peers training and the building of that network is that we are identifying and vetting uh, culturally competent providers. This started actually with our committee a, a few years ago with uh, inpatient treatment facilities. We found ourselves in a position that uh, we had members reaching out saying, you know, I have a guy or girl that really needs help. Where can they go? And we started looking at inpatient treatment facilities that specialize, have specialized programs and working with first responders and identified some. We have four now that we have memorandums of understanding with. Uh, and, and what our vetting process involves 
at least as far as treatment facilities, is actually going to the facility, members of our committee, touring the facility, looking at their first responder program, uh, the content of it, speaking with clients uh, within the facility, and learning about their experiences there to make sure that it's, you know, it's uh, one specialized, that it's on par with what we know is, is competent clinical practice and you know making sure that there's staff there that understands the unique needs and careers of first responders and then uh, we you know the when we form a partnership with those uh, facilities we then have a recommendation or two or three or in this case four at this point to uh, recommend to our members what we will be doing is vetting and uh, approving individual clinicians whether it's police psychologists counselors therapists uh, we are looking even at other wellness products right now. Uh, kind of the new thing is that there are a number of smartphone apps that uh, have wellness related content on them that's specific to law enforcement and not specific to law enforcement, honestly. Uh, and these smartphone apps, some of them are quite good. They offer, uh, you know, a range of things right at the officer's fingertips. They can go in and, and go through a meditation session. They can go in and, and read articles about anxiety. They can connect oftentimes with a trained peer supporter right through this app on their phone. And so we as a committee are taking a look at all of these things. And what we're doing is we're, we are compiling what we're calling the approved provider bulletin. So the APB as it's gonna be called. And that will serve as a backup to and in, in, in tandem with the peer support network. So. Uh, we will publish the approved provider bulletin on our FOP website. And what that will do is it will enable an officer anywhere to go into the website, find resources in their area, or if they're that trained peer on the other end of the phone to go in and help the peer that they're helping to find services within their area. Um, one way that we are identifying the practitioners and programs that go into this directory through our own membership. So we are going to our state leaders, to our local FOP leaders and saying, you know, you know your community better than Sherry Martin does, who's one person in one state. Who have you worked with as a clinician uh, in your area that you know is good, that you know has helped your members, that you know is competent already, uh, that you could recommend to us to recommend to other members who might be in another part of your state who may not know uh, what's out there for them. And so we are going to build the APB from the inside out, if you will. Um, obviously, we um, are looking at other places too. You know, um, liaisoning with uh, liaising, excuse me, with other law enforcement groups. Um, you know, agencies that are out there that have established peer support and wellness programs, and including those clinicians. And as that clinician network grows, you know, it will just build and grow as, as competent clinicians, no other competent clinicians, and if we'll be able to build that and provide a range of resources. Well, so that's <laughs> fantastic. Another fantastic idea. You all are doing so much. What would it take for a clinician? to get on that approved provider bulletin? What are you so, looking for? Yeah, there's a, that's a great question. There's a, a, a few things that we're looking for. Um, you know, I get the question sometimes, is it necessary for the clinician to have been a first responder themselves? And the answer is no. Um, you know, we do have uh, a few police psychologists that work with us on our committee who have in fact been police officers themselves and are now uh, professional practicing psychologists or um, therapists. And they kind of have guided us through the vetting criteria, you know, for looking at therapists. Obviously, with a background in, in counseling myself, I have some uh, knowledge. The, the folks on my committee are also very well-versed in, in, you know, crisis and, and what to look for in counseling. Um, so we look for, you know, a, a, a clinician who has taken some steps to familiarize themselves with the culture. I think the culture of law enforcement is probably the biggest thing when it comes to working with first responders. And understanding that culture is absolutely key um, if you're going to be working with first responders. You know, as I have said before, there's, there's been uh, a culture of suck it up, uh, kind of, you know, suck it up and get back out there. Don't bring your problems to work. Um, you know, anything that's going on in your life should not affect your work. 
um, what's going on at your work should not affect other parts of your life. That's kind of been the culture for many, many, many years. And obviously that's detrimental to a person's mental health. And, you know, it's going to take cultural change. And I think we're seeing that within first responder professions. We are seeing a culture change to uh, acknowledge that the, the traumas uh, that we encounter in our jobs and, you know, the other things that come with a lifestyle is, uh, of you know, living with a career in, as a first responder bring about other stressors. And those things are all normal. They're a normal part of life. So um, absolutely immersion on some level in that culture, whether it's, you know, uh, going to your local police department and doing a few ride-alongs to get a feel for it, um, you know, going to your local uh, fire department and saying, hey, you know, I'd like to come in and learn about what you guys do. Um, <clears throat> I will say <laughs> kind of with humor that uh, watching cop and fire shows on TV is not going to get you there. Right, exactly. Not, <laughs> not only, an accurate portrayal. Right? <laughs> there's only a glimmer of truth in most of the shows on TV. So, um, you know, obviously getting a feel for the real deal uh, and, and getting in there and actually mixing with some of the folks who do those jobs. Um, another thing that I would say is, you know, obviously reading some uh, about what kind of training law enforcement or other first responders go to. I think, you know, especially right now in our current, um, in our current environment, there's a lot of misunderstanding of tactics and training that law enforcement goes through, um, you know, and it, it's not lost on me that the majority of the general public doesn't really know much or understand much about police training. But that's a huge part of uh, why police officers react the way they do, especially in deadly force situations. Um, and, you know, where the outcry from the public who doesn't quite understand police training might be that the police officer was wrong. If the police officer internalizes that and then there's the mixed message of what they learned in training, it can become quite confusing for a law enforcement officer, especially. Um, so, you know, educating themselves about police training, you know, whether that's asking if they can go and observe what goes on at a police academy, um, you know, uh, viewing training videos, for example, that police officers might, um, ha you know, be trained on, things like that as far as uh, tactics. So that's another good step. Um, it's something as simple as having a, a candid conversation with a law enforcement officer or a first responder you know, if, if there's one that they know informally, as much as uh, that first responder would be willing to, to be forthcoming about their experience, especially one that's been in the career for a, a good period of time. Um, you know, a, a lot of first responders who have been in the career for, you know, say around 15 years have had a good deal of experience that they would be able to pull upon and kind of convey what life is like for a first responder in that same vein, talking to the family members of first responders um, and learning what it's like for them. Because, you know, if we work with first responder clients, oftentimes we're going to be working with their families as well. And those stressors are oftentimes felt by the family members just as much, just felt differently. Um, and so, you know, understanding what those family members, including their children, go through um, you know, through the life of a first responder, you know, if there's a, um, if, the, if there's a training program out there, things like there's a, a, the International Association of Chiefs of Police has a psychological services section. If you uh, go to their website, I think it's iacp.com, they have a, a psych services section there that it's composed of police psychologists who um, work very closely with law enforcement. They put out publications from time to time that could be educational for a clinician who's interested in working with a first responder population. And then I think, you know, one piece that's kind of hard to um, conceptualize and put, a, put resources out there as a recommendation for is, you know, knowing whether you as a clinician have the uh, grit to be able to hear about the types of things that first responders see and go through and some of the uh, decisions that they have to make, sometimes life and death, sometimes gut-wrenching, um, and, and being able to be that clinician that can take that in and, you know, 
be able to handle that uh, while treating that client uh, without it overcoming your own um, you know, composure. And then obviously the self-care piece for the clinician that comes along with that, you know, a lot of clinicians who, you know, clinical work is as difficult as it is, and we have to pay attention to self-care, but I, I think it's probably a, a step more difficult when you're, um, you know, treating primarily first responders who face so much trauma in their daily life. Um, there's a lot of, I say I laugh because I know so many, there's a lot of cynicism, uh, especially in, in uh, long-term career law enforcement officers. And so being able to, um, you know, overcome that cynicism and sarcasm maybe um, and, and build rapport and trust with that client, um, you know, to, to get them to a place that, they're, that they can open up about what they've seen. Yes. You use such a great word, grit, in terms of being able to check in as a clinician um, or just being aware if you have that grit. Having been for you, you know, in your unique role, both sides of the fence, therapist and police officer, what are some of your thoughts about that grit or, or whether, you know, there might be a clinician who's thinking about working with police officers, interested, but, but really not sure if they have that grit. Do you have any advice or thoughts about that? Yeah, you know, that's that again, too, is a good question. Um, it, you know, and, and how to uh, find out whether or not you have that is, is a, you know, is a very good question without actually diving in and, you know, risking causing harm. Um, I, you know, I would say to think of the very worst scenario you could possibly think of, um, you know, it, you know, for example, um, if an officer had to deal with doing CPR in an infant who then passed away, um, that's a horrible thing. If an officer had to deal with uh, a vehicular accident where limbs were ripped off or people were decapitated, you know, if, if that's something that would rattle um, a, a clinician, then maybe first responder work is not the place for them. Um, if, you know, if an officer is involved in a life or death incident where they end up taking a life uh, of another person and they then later realize that that was a mistake, um, you know, things like that can be extremely emotionally provoking uh, and gut-wrenching and difficult to hear um, if, if it's something that you've not been exposed to before. So, you know, I guess I have the fortunate experience of having come from a military family, um, you know, and, and having a little bit of the mental toughness instilled in me uh, as, you know, throughout my life. But, you know, even for the strongest of people, of course, uh, empathy comes in. At times you are going to express the emotion. I think the, the key for clinicians is to be able to be a, a source of, um, you know, stability for that first responder, to be able to bring them back, to be able to, you know, for the clinician to be able to main their, their, maintain their own composure uh, enough within a session, even if, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with showing emotion and empathy as an officer works through a problem in therapy, um, but being able to, you know, work with that uh, first responder client to bring them back to a place of stability where you could start to actually do the clinical work. If, you know, if you're, if you think that you might be so overcome by traumatic uh, incidents such as that, that, that you won't be able to get to back to a place where you can actually do the clinical work um, to improve the condition of that first responder, it might actually be more harmful than helpful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You raise so many important issues and it, it sounds like clinician self-awareness all through the process. Absolutely. It also, yeah. And it also makes me think about consultation with colleagues. You know, if, if you're wondering if, if you're immersed and, and involved in working with a, a client who's a police officer and you're noticing some things going on for you, just consulting um, with a colleague about that to check in because we need to do that yes. time to time. And, yeah. and also just preparing for any clinical work, really, but especially this work with self-care, ongoing self-care. Yes, absolutely. a lot of us therapists aren't so great at self-care either. 
You're absolutely right about that. And, and I'll share a secret with you. Neither are first responders. <laughs> I think so. we have that in common. <laughs> absolutely. I'm starting to think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so, you know, keep keep, keep teaching self-care to your, you know, to clients um, and then practicing what you preach, right? That's the challenge. <laughs> absolutely. I agree. Agree wholeheartedly. Um, what do you think um, in, with all of your experience and knowledge, what are some of the differences that um, therapists might see in working with a police officer compared to other first responders? Um, I think, you know, especially you'll find the, um, the decision-making process about police, especially in current times, about use of trained police tactics. So right now, law enforcement is being questioned wholesale, um, at least from the perspective of law enforcement. We, I think law enforcement as a profession feels completely under scrutiny, um, that everything we've been trained to do uh, thus far is being questioned, um, you know, so that unfortunately, uh, officers have started to question themselves. And that's, that I think is going to be a huge struggle going forward uh, for a lot of our, our police officer clients, um, you know, because they'll start to second guess themselves. Whereas before, uh, before all the scrutiny came about, there's always been a little bit of scrutiny. Um, you know, we're, the profession's aware of that. But in the last six months or so, since the George Floyd incident, it seems to be amplified 10,000 fold. And, you know, that's going to be one huge difference that you're going to see. Firemen are, are not, you know, and other first responders, EMT, et cetera, are not being looked at uh, with such scrutiny as law enforcement is with that regard. Um, another thing is, you know, there's going to be a lot more decision making around deadly force encounters that uh, police, officer going, or police officers are going to experience that firemen or, or you know, other first responders won't encounter. Um, in the law enforcement field also, I think there's a lot more independent work that goes on uh, where a police officer might be working a scene independently and all of the outcome of that scene might fall onto that one individual, whereas oftentimes other first responders work in teams and, you know, there, there might be um, the, the outcome of the situation might be felt more by a team uh, and distributed amongst the team. Uh, where they can support each other through it oftentimes. And sometimes a police officer client doesn't have that uh, because they might have been in that situation by themselves or just with one other officer. In that regard, would, would you say that um, at times police officers have less protective factors than some other first responders like that social group? Yeah, I, I absolutely would. At times, at times, yes, uh, because I think I'm not sure what the numbers are, but I think statistically, the majority of police officers in this country operate da daily independently, you know, in their job. You know, obviously they have supervision, obviously they have squad mates and team members and, and things like that. But when it comes to, you know, day to day, they're in a patrol car by themselves most of the time not, you know, at a station house with a group of people or, you know, within a vehicle uh, responding with a group of people. So there is a loss of that. There is still uh, support and camaraderie in law enforcement. You know, when a squad comes together on a call, a squad comes together at the end of a shift or in roll call, things like that, um, and they can talk to each other and, you know, talk about things. But there is a lot more independence in law enforcement that kind of makes it a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're doing so many important things. And, and it, one of the motivations for me focusing on this topic at this time is because it seems to me that it, it's time for clinicians to step up and meet you all where you need, you know, what's needed right now, that you need culturally competent clinicians um, to work with police officers. So, um, if, if a clinician wanted to learn more about what you do and about this, the ongoing, you know, work that's going on, um, what would you, where would you recommend? Sure. So I have a few recommendations. Um, we have, as I said, a committee that uh, works with me on the officer wellness committee. We're always available for, you know, conversations if 
I, I feel confident every member of my committee would be willing to sit down with a clinician and talk about, you know, the, the, the dirt and grit about what it's like to actually get in there and do the job. And everybody that's on the committee is an experienced police officer with at least 10 years or more on the job. So um, any one of us would be willing to do that. Um, our, our email, I'll shout it out right quick, is officerwellness at fop.net. Um, so clinicians could reach out to us there. I, as I uh, mentioned before, the IACP psych services section has a good bit of information that is available to clinicians who are interested in learning more about working with law enforcement. A lot of the clinicians as police psychologists that are in the uh, psychological, psychological service section of the IACP, it's International Association of Chiefs of Police, um, are those that do fit for duty evaluations and um, you know, uh, pre-employment, but they are starting to work to provide training to clinicians who are uh, seeking to become more culturally competent. And then finally, uh, the FOP had our very first, what we call our Officer Wellness Summit. It's a training event for members of our organization. It was in January. We are looking forward to our second coming up in February, COVID willing. Um, it's going to be held in Nashville February, February 8th and 9th. And through that Officer Wellness Summit, we provide uh, members of our organization with a range of training on wellness topics. So everything from um, panel discussions about peer support and how to set up a peer support program to um, speaking about family wellness to a uh, spiritual component of wellness. And this, and coming up in 2021, preceding, immediately preceding that Officer Wellness Summit, we are trying to organize a wellness professionals forum. So at what that event will be, what, it will provide some education about what the FOP is doing as far as setting up our wellness programs. It will provide some education about working with first responder clients. And that instruction will be provided by one of our police psychologists who works with us on our committee. She is uh, formerly a police officer herself. Her name is Dr. Stephanie Kahn. And um, she's uh, also got a book on police resilience. Uh, she's a practicing therapist in Portland, Oregon area fantastic resource uh, for that can speak a lot to the intersection between, between clinical work and law enforcement because she's been both and comes from a family of first responders. So she uh, is very knowledgeable about that topic and we, we rely on her a lot for her expertise as well. Um, and then, you know, conversations with folks like her, there's another uh, clinician out there, police psychologist, Dr. Tom Coughlin, He's in the New York area uh, and, and formerly worked with NYPD. He's a retired NYPD officer who's now a full-time police psychologist treating clinician. Uh, seeking out folks like that who uh, ha are doing both, you know, who have that range already of expertise and can speak to what it's like to actually work with first responder clients. Um, so the, the professionals forum that the FOP is, is putting together is going to provide uh, not only that training, not only a, an overarching uh, picture of what the FOP is doing, but also opportunities to network with other clinicians that are you know, interested in doing this work, that are already doing this work, so that they can connect and you know, go forward in learning together. Oh, that's fantastic. I will um, include those links and information in the show notes. So great, great. others can, can access that. Fantastic. Well, Sherry, wow. Um, there's so much going on and it, this is so important um, at this time in particular. Um, so work you're doing is just fantastic. And um, one last question. Um, what, what is a, sort of a take home message that you would give for therapists, either new therapists or you know, experienced therapists who might be interested in working with police officers? The, the key is trust. Um, as with any clinical relationship, um, the key is trust. You know, how you get to that uh, trust with a first responder client is the challenge, I think. Um, if you, you know, it, it's easy if you've been a first responder yourself. Uh, but if you haven't, you know, the key is establishing that trust. Now, I have, you know, have talked to many police officers who have been to a clinician who's helped them, who has not, you know, had any background knowledge of, of first responder uh, life until that client met with them. So it is possible. 
but it's I think it's hard to uh, build that trust and rapport with a first responder client if you're at least if you're not at least educated in the, you know what the lifestyle includes you know the 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 you know let's say for example that the the presenting issue is not about their job the job is still always going to be in there somewhere and so knowing what that job entails um, is going to affect the way that they experience the other stressors in their life and so it's key to establish that trust to have that background knowledge about what that job is like absolutely very important advice so thank you so much Sherry, for um, just sharing all of this important information. Yeah, really I'm absolutely it. thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled that um, you have taken up uh, this initiative to uh, dig deeper into this. I agree with you. We need uh, as many competent therapists and clinicians as we can find for our first responders. Um, you know, one thing that we do on the wellness committee, kind of our primary, one of our primary missions is to keep wellness constantly in the conversation. Um, one thing that we think is important for overcoming the stigma that's felt by so many of our first responders is to normalize, you know, normalize. If you break your arm, you go to the doctor. If your spirit gets broken or your mind's not working right, you should go to the doctor in what you know in whatever form that is, and to, to you know to show that it's normal for that to happen to you, um, yes. especially in a career like this. Yes. So the focus on wellness rather than mental illness, and the whole body, you know, the body, mind, spirit, all of it, the whole person. Absolutely. That's what's key too. We spend so much time in law enforcement working on our physical fitness and. You know, why are we not working on mental fitness just as much? And I think that that message is changing in our profession, which is fantastic. But again, you're right. It's going gonna, it's gonna to create a greater need as more people are willing to come forward and work on their mental wellness. It's going to require more resources for them to do it. Yes, absolutely. Well, again, Sherry, thank you so much. It's been an honor talking with you today. Thank you. You as well. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Make sure you check out the show notes about Terry at www.thetherapycafe.com. We look forward to bringing you more information about first responder wellness in the next few episodes. Thanks so much for listening. This is Dr. Kathleen Talent at the Therapy Cafe podcast, signing off. Until next time.